The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Now I would invite all of you, if you have a, a Bible, have that handy, and you might want to start having it open at Matthew 16, which is verse 18, where that's kind of our theme verse of the day. Just to bring you up to speed, if you haven't been here uh, recently, we went through the book of Titus, and shortly we'll pick up another New Testament book and go section by section. But in the meantime, I thought it would be a, a good time to take a break and uh, cover some different uh, thematic issues from Scripture, basic to Christian life and church life. Just thought it would be time for good reminders. So I came up with a series about six to eight weeks. We're going to be just looking at really the fundamentals of being a Christian and the fundamentals of how a church is supposed to function and operate and what a church is all about and supposed to be doing because there is surprisingly a lot of confusion about that, about what local churches should be involved in, what their priorities are, what they should be doing. So um, also, being that we've been here six years and a half plus, it's good to review the basics of and the fundamentals of what church life is so that we're all on the same page. Uh, some of you have been here a while and others have transitioned in somewhat recently. And so going back to the fundamentals and basics of church life and what we are to be as a local church is just one of the great ways to solidify unity among the body of Christ. So there's clear understanding from God's word together. So we've looked um, for the last couple of weeks at some different issues. Last week we talked about what it means to be serving in the local church with the goal of building the body of Christ. And then the week before that, we talked about confrontation and conflict resolution. Because as you rub shoulders in the church with people, inevitably there will be conflict. That's true anywhere. It's true in your home life, your marriage, with your children at the workplace. That's just because we are fallen sinners. And God knows that. Jesus knew that. And so he gave believers a very clear model of how to resolve conflict in a biblical and godly manner. So we looked at that. And today, uh, the theme is, in the series I'm calling Life in the Body, but today's theme is Jesus Builds the Church. And I thought that was appropriate, being that this is a special day for our church in terms of our transition and move. And this is really one of the most foundational issues and questions we need to consider, is the church, its nature, how it relates to Jesus himself. Who builds the church? I guess another title to this, other than Jesus Builds the Church, is Church Growth which is a popular topic. Many books out there written on church growth. A lot of different ones with a lot of different viewpoints and different philosophies. Many of them clash, <coughs> excuse me, clashing with one another on church growth. How do you grow the church? And uh, a lot of pastors and church experts uh, take that question very seriously and pursue it with great diligence trying to answer the question, how do you build the church? And today in America, we've got what we call mega churches. I don't know if you've heard of megachurches. I was told that a megachurch officially is a church of a 1,000 people or more. That is what constitutes a megachurch. So if you're a church of 900 people, sorry, you're just a little church. If you're a 1,000 people, you're a megachurch. <clears throat> and there are many megachurches across the country. Some would say that that would be the goal of your local church is to keep growing. Like we started GBF with 19 people, and some would say the goal is just to keep growing and growing, and hopefully someday... We'll be a megachurch. That's how some people think. And some people, it's here in America, and that's pretty normal. They measure success by numbers and 
getting bigger and numerically inflating. And I would just submit that that's not necessarily how God gauges, evaluates success or even considers success because there are plenty of things that grow that aren't good. False religions, false churches, false movements also grow numerically and get bigger. So just strictly looking at the numbers is not a way to gauge success. But as people talk and look at models of churches that grow, one common thing for pastors to do is look around the country and see what church is really growing, which one has grown a lot in a short period of time, and then we'll go talk to them, interview them, and let's get their secret. What was their formula? How did they grow the church? What were their secrets? And then they might go talk to the pastor or the leaders of the church and say, well, how did you grow the church? And actually the biblical answer is they didn't grow the church. Jesus grows the church because he promised he would. And so that's our theme today. Hence, Jesus builds the church. So true church life, true health, true growth isn't just about inflating numbers. There is growth in breadth, numerically, but there also is growth in terms of depth in the Christian life, going beyond the surface and roots that go deep. That's probably... Uh, more emphasized in the New Testament and from Jesus' point of view, are we growing deep, deeply rooted? So that's also very important. So we're not all about numbers. We shouldn't be. That's kind of been the commitment of GBF since we started, and we've emphasized that, and especially among the leadership. We're not all just about numbers and getting bigger. If God wants to grow our church bigger in terms of numbers, that is his prerogative, we pray and believe. That's up to Jesus. If we stay at 189, for a long period of time, and we're trying to be faithful, that's okay. Then Jesus knows we can only manage 189. The important thing is the leaders need to be shepherding the sheep. And if we can't handle 300, then I don't want 300. Um, So we want to just be faithful to what Jesus has designated. So we say all the time, oh, we're not about numbers. We're really spiritual. We don't care about numbers. And then inevitably, we do a head count on Sundays. How many people were there? What was the attendance? What was the average? Or every time I go to the Shepherds Conference every year, inevitably I interact with like 20, 30 pastors that I know. And it it goes both ways. Every pastor says, so how many of you guys going to your church now? Oh, yeah, we planted a church. We're three years old. So how many people you got coming? And then we take a step back and realize, oh, we should feel guilty because we're talking about numbers. That's not spiritual. Um, But again, if God wants to grow a church numerically, again, that's his prerogative. But the important truth is it is Jesus who builds the church. So let's go ahead, look at Matthew 16:18. That is our key verse. So uh, we're going to focus mostly on the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 16:18, but we will look at some corollary supplementary truths that come out of other passages in the New Testament as well. But this will be our launching pad and foundation. So four truths that I gleaned from Matthew 16:18 regarding Jesus builds the church. I want to read that verse. This is at the end of Jesus' ministry. He spent three-plus years training 12 men to be his apostles. Uh, He's also discipled many others. He has a regular following called the disciples, which could be hundreds of people. He had a group of very faithful women who also followed him. So this is at the end of his ministry, uh, this event that happened, Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16. He knows that his death is imminent, and he begins to actually warn his apostles, I am leaving, I am departing, I am going to die. And he's reminding his apostles of that, preparing them, because they're going to pick up in his 
absence. So that's the context. This is at the end of his ministry. Has kind of a final exam for his apostles after teaching them for three years. Kind of the seminary final. Asking them, who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Do you understand who I am? Uh, starting at verse 13, actually Matthew 16, to set the context. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Okay, it's been three and a half years. What are people saying about me? Because people always have their opinions. Verse 14, and they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah. Others say you're one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you guys, you apostles that I've been with for three plus years, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter blurted out without hesitation, answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter got it right. He knew that Jesus was the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, not just a prophet. This was the correct answer. The Son of the living God, that phrase, that didn't mean that He was just a man. The Son of God for the Jew was a title that referred to someone who actually shared the same nature as God. Really, in a way, Peter's acknowledging the deity of Jesus Christ here with this statement. This is startling, but he was correct. Verse 17, And Jesus answered and said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't just discover this on your own. This was revealed to you by God and the Holy Spirit and took away the veil of unbelief so that you could see me, Jesus Christ, clearly for who I am. Because several of the disciples, no doubt, and other onlookers, were around Jesus for three years, saw Jesus do miracles, heard Jesus teach, interacted with Jesus, and even after several years, some still concluded only that He was John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or just another prophet. They got it wrong. After all the evidence had been laid out, There needed to be a supernatural revelation of who Jesus' identity truly was. And Peter got it. Therefore, Jesus commends him and says, Peter, uh, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. And I also say to you, Peter, that upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Or the gates of hell shall not overpower it overpower it, some translations say, but actually more specifically and accurately, the gates of death shall not overpower it, and death is the greatest weapon of Satan. So they all kind of overlap in terms of the truth being communicated. I will build my church and the gates of death shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you shall bind on earth, Peter and the other apostles shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What a great truth. So we're looking at Matthew 16, 18. This great declaration where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of death shall not overpower it. Here are the four truths that I want to glean from that great truth regarding who builds the church, and it's Jesus builds the church. Point number one is Jesus owns the church. Very important. Jesus owns the church. Matthew 16, 18 When Jesus was talking to Peter, he said, I will build my church. There it is. My personal pronoun. Jesus made it emphatically clear. The church was his. It belonged to him. He owns it. He has absolute ownership of it. He is the Lord of the church. The church is no man's church. This is not 
the elders' church. I've said this repeatedly. This is not Cliff's church. I mean, we say that in the vernacular. We know what we mean. Like this morning, I think I said some pastor's name. Oh, do you go to his church? I didn't mean that he's the master and lord of the church, but that's where he's a shepherd and the one high profile noticed. But in terms of who has the authority in the church, it is Jesus. He said the church was his. It belonged to him. I want you to look at Acts chapter 20, 28. There's a lot of reasons we could say that Jesus owns the church. It is his church. One of the explicit statements in the New Testament that tells us why Jesus could say that he owns the church is given in Acts chapter 20 by the Apostle Paul. As Paul summarizes the meaning of his preaching ministry as an apostle, hand-selected by Jesus himself, uh, Jesus commissioned the Apostle Paul to preach and really begin and lay down the foundation of the church Jesus had the right and the authority to appoint the Apostle Paul to lay down the foundation of the church because Jesus owned the church. And So in Acts chapter 20, Paul is talking to the elders of Ephesus, a plurality of men, and he's, Paul planted the church in Ephesus. He pastored the church in Ephesus. He raised up the elders and trained those elders. Paul served there for at least three and a half years. And upon his departure, he got all the elders uh, together in a meeting as he was leaving, reminding them of the basics of church ministry and church leadership. And it climaxes with this exhortation from Paul to the elders. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers as elders. Shepherd the, the church of God. Shepherd the church of God. Take care of the church of God. And he refers to the church of God explicitly, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He is referring to Jesus the Savior. And Paul is saying that Jesus purchased the church. He redeemed the church. As a result, he owns the church. And he paid the highest price for it, his very own blood, as the sinless Savior. And so this is one of the most explicit statements in the entire Bible, referring to Jesus and his rightful ownership of the church. The church belongs to him. It is his. He is Lord of the church. He's master of the church. He's in charge of the church. He has all authority over the church and all the implications that Come with that. Before I go on to point number two, under point number one, I do want to answer the question briefly, well, what is the church? Jesus bought the church with his blood. He owns the church. He's head over the church. But what is the church? You would be surprised how much confusion there is in the Christian world, and there has been for quite some time, about what the church is. Uh, We might even, if I gave you a pop quiz in here and said, okay, in a paragraph... Or less, give me your definition of what the church is. It may very well be that we would have conflicting and different answers or definitions of what the church is. So here's a quick summary. Hold on to your socks. Here we go. What is the church? Well, the church is, according to the Bible, it's constituted or made up of believers of the New Covenant. The New Covenant did not exist in the Old Testament The new covenant was inaugurated, initiated by Jesus, his death and resurrection and ascension. And that's when the new covenant began. And anytime someone is saved in this dispensation under the new covenant, they become a member of the church. So what is the church? It constitutes believers of the new covenant. We are people of the new covenant, not the old covenant. Uh, Speaking of that, the church is people, not a building. It's people, not a building. We have a building to meet in. But the building is not the church. It's kind of funny. When you talk to people, typically today, when you say the word church or they're thinking church, usually they're thinking of a building. 
the amazing thing is, in the New Testament, every time the word church occurs, and it occurs a lot, it never refers to a building, ever. The word church never refers to a building in the Bible. The church always refers to people. So we would say that the church is people, not a building. And because it's people, it's a living entity. And so that's why in the New Testament, the church is called a body. It's like a living organism, a living, breathing, dynamic organism. That's what the church is. So it's a body, not a business. It's a body, not a building. It's a body, not a bureaucracy, although churches are good at being bureaucratic sometimes. It's a body, meaning it's a living entity and an organism. It is not an organization in the secular sense of the word. It's first and foremost an organism, a living entity not an organization. We need to be organized, though. So, these are some key truths about the church. The church is also a spiritual family. We are a family. That's God's point of view. And the family is constituted of family members. All the believers make up the bride. This family has a bride. And if you're a believer, you're part of the bride. The groom is Jesus. You are married to Jesus Christ. And He's preparing for His wedding day. Those of you who have been married... Usually it's the ladies. You know what can go into planning a wedding. It's a huge ordeal, isn't it? And it takes weeks and weeks. No, check that. It takes months and months. No, check that. It takes years and years to plan that wedding the way you want it. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ actually literally been preparing for His wedding day for about 2,000 years now, and He's still preparing. That's literally what Ephesians 4 at the end says. He is preparing His bride for His wedding day. Day And anybody that is a born-again Christian under the New Covenant is a part of being the bride that Jesus will be eternally married to. So this is the family. It's made up of a bride. It's made up of a groom, Jesus, and the bride and the groom. They both have a father, and that is God the Father. He is a father. That's the spiritual family. The church is also a mystery. A mystery in the New Testament occurs over a dozen times. It usually means the same thing every time, identical. A mystery. We think a mystery is something that you can't discover. Or sometimes it's something that doesn't make sense. That is not what the word mystery means in the New Testament. Almost every single time, mystery refers to a specific truth about the church. About the church. Usually it's Paul that uses that word. And he's telling us a new truth about the church, the body of Christ, that was not known in the Old Testament. That's why it was a mystery. It was a mystery because it was hidden and not seen in the Old Testament, but is revealed in the New Testament. So a mystery actually is a newly revealed truth in the New Testament that was hidden in the Old Testament. So the church is a mystery from a historical Old Testament point of view, but now it has been revealed in the New Testament with the coming of Jesus Christ. Um, What else about the church? Well, it started at, well, when did the church start? That is a point of debate. I'll just... Use R.C. Sproul because he's pretty well known. He's a Christian and a Bible teacher and a faithful man of God and has been for years and written lots of good stuff. He's a Presbyterian minister and a seminary professor, scholar, and all that good stuff. And he's written many books. And in some of his writings, he says repeatedly that the church, get this, began in Genesis chapter 2 with Adam and Eve and that the church has existed all throughout history for 6,000 years. The church existed in the Old Testament and carried right on into the New Testament seamlessly. And that would be his perspective. And that's pretty typical of Presbyterian theology or covenant theology or non-dispensational theology. Sorry to 
confuse you with all those big multi-syllable words. Uh, but that's pretty common belief. And we would say, no, the church did not begin in Genesis chapter 2. The church didn't exist in the Old Testament. The church began in the New Testament. Because Paul said about 12 plus times, the church is a mystery. It doesn't exist in the Old Testament. It wasn't even talked about. As a matter of fact, you won't find the word church in the Old Testament, 39 books, at all. The church is a new entity that came and was founded by Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk more about that in point number two. So uh, the church started at Pentecost after Christ rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. Uh, The church of Jesus Christ was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. The apostles were the foundation and the first layer of the church, meaning the church didn't exist before the apostles. That's clear. So the church began in the New Testament with the apostles. Uh, The church is considered one new man. That's the mystery that this new entity of God, one new man, meaning Gentile and Jew, are one person in Christ because of their belief in the gospel. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile as there was in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. So church is one new man. The church is not the new Israel. It's not the spiritual Israel. God still has a special relationship with Israel and will resume that in the future. The church is totally distinct from the nation of Israel. As a result, God's main interest in history and in time for the last 2,000 years up until the tribulation, his God's main interest is in the church. That wasn't true in the Old Testament. His main interest was with the nation of Israel. And prior to that, it was with just believers in general. But for now, during the church age, God's main interest is in working with the church until the tribulation when he'll resume his interest in the nation of Israel. One of Paul's favorite terms of the church is called the body of Christ. It's a beautiful term in terms of its symbolism and metaphor. Regarding the church, you don't join this church, the real church, the church of Christ. You can't join it. It's a spiritual entity. It's a spiritual family. You don't say, God, I want to join. You're allowed to be adopted into the true universal church of Christ through salvation and belief in the gospel, and then the Holy Spirit of God adds you to the body of Christ. So it's a spiritual entrance by adoption into the true church. That's the universal, ongoing church of God. And there is a distinction between the earthly, local churches that exist. Last two points about the church. The one true, universal, spiritual church that exists has invisible and visible members in it. Invisible members are those who believed the gospel, became Christians, died, went to heaven, and they're in heaven right now with Christ. But they're still a part of the church body. And then there are those of us who are believers down on earth. We're also members of that same body of Christ. So right now, the true universal church body of Christ is composed of invisible and visible members. Visible members here on earth, invisible ones up in heaven with God. Yet, there's also a physical component. The physical earthly church right now, made up of all the local fellowships, GBF and all of our local churches here in the Bay Area and across the United States and across the world, the physical church on earth, get this, has real members in it and also has false counterfeit members in it. It's a mixed bunch. It's a hodgepodge. Jesus told us it would be like that until he came again. That's what he told his apostles. So Jesus said that the church would always on earth be filled with wheat, that's true believers, and weeds, counterfeit unbelievers. Or another word Jesus used was sheep, true believers, goats, 
false believers that sometimes are almost impossible to identify on a human level. If you ever worked on an animal farm and took care of baby sheep and baby goats like I was privileged to do for a few years. Actually, I watched Debbie do it. Every once in a while, I'd have to go feed the, the animals, and that included feeding the sheep and the goats. And any time a baby, uh, I mean mommy sheep or mommy goat had a baby, one thing I noticed is that baby sheep and baby goats, they're almost impossible to tell apart. And you really can't figure it out unless you're a specialist or until they start getting older. And then sheep are kind of nice and stupid, and goats are evil and filled with demons. That's kind of how I discovered That was my distinction. So it really resonates with me when Jesus says there are sheep, believers, and then goats. Those are unbelievers. So anyway, that's just I know that's a quick survey, but I did want to answer that question. What is this church that Jesus owns? That's point number one. Go on to point number two, Matthew 16, 18. Not only does Jesus own the church, Jesus will build the church. Jesus will build. Jesus said, I will build the church. So if you're a covenant theologian today, you might want to take me to task after church in the lobby. Be nice about it. And one of the issues might be, well, uh, the church just didn't start in Pentecost 2,000 years ago. The church has always existed. It did. I agree with R.C. Sproul. It did start in Genesis 2. Actually, and then some covenant theologians will say, well, actually it started in Genesis 12 with Abraham. And then some will say, no, actually it started with Moses in 1400 B.C. So they really don't agree and I would say, well, I don't think so because of Jesus' own words. In Matthew 16, 18, he's telling his apostles who would lay the foundation of the church, he said, I will build the church. Will is future tense, meaning up to that point the church did not exist because Jesus said, I will build the church. He didn't say, I will continue to keep building the church I already started. It's just very clear, especially in your Greek text. I will build the church means it hasn't happened yet. It's going to be a future event. That's exactly what it was. So when Jesus said that, it was a prophecy. It's categorical. It is clear. And he was going to build it on the foundation of the apostles and his teaching that he gave in the New Testament. So that phrase is very important. I will. So Jesus will build the church. It is future. It's a prophecy. It is also a promise from Jesus Himself. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus never lies. Jesus knows everything. Jesus is all-powerful. And when Jesus makes a promise, He always follows through, doesn't He? 100% of the time. Jesus is a promise-maker and a promise-keeper. We? We are promise-breakers. So... We can be guaranteed Jesus is going to fulfill his promise. So this will be future. It began after he ascended from the dead that he would build his church. Uh, it's a promise. Not only is it a promise, it's a declaration. He is declaring as the master and the Lord of the universe, I will build my church. In fact, you can count on it. It is going to happen. Then he goes on to say that uh, the gates of Hades will not even overpower it. Just a couple other points regarding this wonderful promise from Jesus saying that he will build the church. He's been building it for 2,000 years, as we already said. We are, we are fulfilling prophecy today. There are some people who go to extremes and say, well, there aren't any Bible prophecies being fulfilled today. And I'd say, well, yeah, some people have gone overboard on that. I do believe a prophecy is being fulfilled again and again and again and again and again. And I believe it's Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus said, I will build the church. That is a prophecy. And every time a person becomes a Christian, they are added to the church. And that's part of Jesus fulfilling his promise. I will build the church. You and I, if you are a Christian, we are a part of modern day fulfilled prophecy. Isn't that amazing? I will build the church. 
Uh, and this is also a promise of continuity and perpetuity, meaning the church would go on and continue because Jesus said he would continue to do it. And the fact that Jesus said, I will build the church, tells me that Jesus is in charge. He is the foreman. Uh, the foreman. He is the engineer. He uh, designs everything. He knows everything. He knows how, how to grow the church. He knows all the ingredients required. So we don't need to invent or come up with anything new. We don't need to be innovators on church growth. Because Jesus is in charge. He said he would do it. I will build it. So we don't need to be innovators. We don't need to be creative and find out. Let's find out some new secret and how to build the church. It's already been established. Jesus did it. He modeled it. He told us how to do it. He's given it to us in Scripture. He gave us the apostles to also show us how to do it. He's made it clear in his word. Well, how does Jesus build the church? Well, last week, saints serving was a big part of it. But there really are four components that Jesus uses to build his church. First of all, Jesus builds the church. He is doing it proactively, but he's doing it in abstention. He is in heaven, building the church from heaven. And he's using other agents actually to carry out the mandate of building the church. And here's how he's doing it. The four things are, Jesus is building the church through the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, when I leave, I will send the Spirit of God in my place to carry on my work. So the Spirit of God is building the church. If you have a a facility with a bunch of people and the Spirit of God is not there or present, you don't have a church and you don't have a church growing. There is no real church growth apart from the Spirit of God. Living in His people and living among His people. It starts there. Also, Jesus Christ builds His church through His Word, through Scripture, through biblical truth. There is no church growth apart from Scripture and biblical truth. The Spirit of God uses biblical truth to build and grow the church. Also, the third component, Jesus builds his church through his people. We talked about that last week. Jesus left his people on earth to take over his place to be co-laborers with Jesus to build the church. So there is no church growth going on. The church is not being built apart from human beings. Frail, weak, finite, sinful Human beings. Isn't that amazing that Jesus and God the Father would be willing to use us to build the church? But we do have the supernatural resources of the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God. That is amazing. And then finally, uh, Jesus uses faithful prayer of the saints to build his church. And I, I would submit also that there is no true uh, church growth happening and church life being perpetuated without being empowered by fervent prayer from God's people. If you have a prayerless church, then you probably have a dead, non-growing, dying church. So, good reminders for us. We need to be spirit-empowered, word-centered, prayer-energized, serving the church, the body of Christ, that it might grow. So, number one, Jesus owns the church. Number two, Jesus will build the church. Number three, Jesus warned about enemies of the church. Jesus warned about enemies of the church. Upon this rock I will build my church. And then he said, And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, the gates of death shall not overpower it. So this is the negative part of that promise. When he said that Hades, hell, death, Jesus implied that Hades, hell, and death would try to stop the growth of the church. So Jesus was a realist. Jesus believed what many people don't believe. He believed that evil was real. Evil was real, and he referred to it here. And this is a reality check for us. 
church life isn't just all about being happy. Right? Church, the Christian life, the happy spirit. It's not called the happy spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. Uh, I was listening to Christian radio on, I think it was Thursday as I was driving or Friday on some radio station, didn't know, but it was a Christian radio station. And the announcer was a Christian and they had a Bible verse today. And then they were given the gospel, which was great. And they gave the gospel. And then they said, if you become a Christian, you know, and he, they said that your life would be fun and exciting and wonderful and happy. And I'm thinking, wow, that is not true of me sometimes. Sometimes life is not happy as a Christian. It's not always happy. It's not always rosy. And the New Testament doesn't paint that portrait. It's more in keeping with what Jesus said. If you're a Christian, you're going to have enemies. When you become a Christian, you will automatically inherit instantly four or five enemies. How do you like that promise? Become a Christian and a lot of people are going to hate you. Well, that doesn't give me warm fuzzies. But Jesus is a realist that there are going to be enemies of the church. That's the bad news. The good news is that these enemies are not going to overpower and overcome the church. But Jesus is telling us, boy, we need to be on guard of the enemies. The question is, who are the enemies of the church? Well, three main ones. The, uh, the biggest enemy of the church, obviously, would be Satan. Satan and his demons. Jesus referred to Satan as an enemy. John chapter 8 called him an enemy of God's people. First uh, Peter 5, 8 warns us. Warns Christians, behold, behold, wake up, Christian, get this, Christian, be alarmed, Christian, your enemy, the devil. Well, there it is. If you're a Christian, you have an enemy and he is the devil. Your enemy, the devil, roams around, present tense, continues to roam around like a cat. Cats are kind of sneaky. They're quiet, sneak attack, or maybe slithering around like a snake. They are also sneaky. And that is Satan. Roam around. What is, what's he doing? Like a lion, they are voracious, vicious, and they just want to tear things apart. And that's what Satan does. Seeking whom he may devour. And that's Satan's full-time job. He is roaming around seeking. His main attack is on the church and on Christians. I don't think he really gives much attention to unbelievers because they're good. They're in his camp. They're following his lead. He's on the attack of believers. So that's the main enemy. Uh, Jesus warned us that we would have enemies in the church. So there's Satan and his demons. They are invisible. They are supernatural. They are dangerous. Uh, the second enemy is the world. The unbelieving world is our enemy. If you're a Christian, you have an enemy, and it's the unbelieving world. Listen to these two verses. Uh, John 7, 7. Jesus said, quote, The world hates me. End quote. We've talked about that. The world hates Jesus. That's why I don't get it when people write church growth books or whatever, trying to, uh, or evangelism books, and they're trying to make, or missional books, and they're trying to make an impact in the world, and a lot of the emphasis is on, you know, one thing, we just got to get the unbelieving world to like us and respect us. Ain't going to happen. Not if we're speaking the truth. Jesus said categorically, the world hates me. John 7 7. So let's just be honest. What do they hate? Well, they hate the truth. What's the truth they really hate? They hate the truth that Jesus came and said, we are all sinful and need a Savior. That really made them mad. And it still makes them mad today. Uh, then Jesus goes on in John. John fifteen nineteen. Get this. Here's another quote. And he's talking to Christians or believers. The world hates you. There it is. The world hates you. That is still true. If you're a Christian, the world hates you. So don't go out in the world and try to appease them and try to candy coat things so that the world will like you because they won't. 
if they like you, then we are compromising the truth, aren't we? We don't need to go out, though, and try to be obnoxious. But if we're speaking the truth, even if we're doing it in love with the right motive, a reaction from a sinful world is still that they're going to, be, they're going to hate us. They're going to hate Christians. They're going to hate Jesus. So our enemies, Satan and his demons, and then number two is the unbelieving world, and then number three, so by the way, unbelieving world, I mean people outside the church, on the outside. And then finally, enemy number three are wolves in sheep's clothing. These are religious people who will be our enemies. And Paul talked about it in Acts chapter 20. Peter talked about it in Second Peter. Jude talked about it in his short little epistle. This is uh, Jesus talked about it in all four Gospels. And he, he tried to warn his people. You're going to have the church... You're going to have gatherings together as believers and inevitably within your own assembly among all the professing believers there will be false believers who will actually be your enemy. And Paul and Peter and Jude called them, actually Jesus did as well, these are wolves in sheep's clothing. Sheep's clothing, they are disguised like a Christian, like a true sheep. But on the inside, their nature is they are unredeemed. And as a result, they hate God, they despise the truth, and as a result, they're also going to hate you as a believer when you stand for the truth. So those are our enemies. And uh, these are very dangerous enemies because many times we are rubbing shoulders with these people inside the church. They are at our Bible studies. They come to our worship services. We have communion with them. They join our churches. They go through the membership process. They get baptized sometimes. They teach in our pulpits. They give their testimonies. They are hard to identify many times. That's why they're so dangerous. They speak Christian language. They quote from the Bible. They profess to believe in Jesus. They are mentioned in just about every New Testament epistle. Every one of the apostles' churches had them, was hurt by them, was undermined by them, was maligned and shocked and surprised by them, and even deceived by them. There are many people that Paul worked with that he thought were his comrades and his partners in ministry, and it wasn't until years later he realized, wow, that Alexander the coppersmith, that was one bad dude. Man, he fooled me. He hurt me very bad. So if you look at 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Paul mentions several of these guys by name. These are dangerous people. Probably some of the most dangerous enemies we have. So, what about the church? Jesus owns the church. Jesus will build the church. Jesus warned about enemies in the church. And then finally, number four, how about some good news as we go to lunch? After all that enemy talk. Jesus promised victory for the church. And all God's people said, Amen. Okay, let's go to lunch. Well, He did. He promised victory. Yeah, there's going to be enemies, but it doesn't end there. The gates of death, the gates of hell, the gates of Satan, the gates of Hades shall not overpower the church. Isn't that awesome? Jesus is building the church. He's the head of the church. And what he began to do, he is going to finish. It doesn't matter who gets in his way. He is going to be, be victorious. Jesus is sovereign. He is master. He is God. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. He is going to fulfill his purpose. History is going somewhere and it's going to reach the very climax and goal that Jesus intended and that is the victory of the church of Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, you are a part of that church. Isn't it good to be on a winning team? I am sick of being on the losing team. The last two years has been horrible. It's like everybody I'm rooting for is a loser. That's why this passage is so encouraging to me. Oh, well, the most important team, the family of God, Jesus Christ. I'm on the church's team. It's going to be victorious. The greatest victory of all, an eternal victory. We're in the process of victory. 
So these aren't just defensive words Jesus is using. He's not on the defense. Jesus is on the offensive. I will. He came into the world. That is offensive. To seek and to say to seek out. That is offensive, isn't it? It's not defensive. And that's what Jesus is doing today. He is in the world through His Spirit, through His Gospel, through His people, through the prayers of the saints, seeking sinners, saving them soul by soul, building up His church, working towards His goal with the Father and the Spirit to accomplish that ultimate goal, and that is victory for the church. The gates of hell will not overpower it. And there are so many implications from that that I can't go into detail now, but maybe just a couple of points. The fact that Jesus promised that the gates of hell wouldn't overcome or overpower the church means the church would succeed. And I believe, because he used the present tense verb, I will continue to be building the church, or I will build the church, and it will continue on, and nothing will overcome it. The promise is that the church would continue on as is in perpetuity or continuity, meaning at no time in history until it is fulfilled, would the church cease from existing on the earth? In other words, God always has a witness on the earth. God always has His Scriptures preserved on the earth. The Bible has never been lost since Jesus had His apostles write it. There is not a third Corinthians out there somewhere that we need to add to our Bible. Or the Gospel of Judas that needs to be... No, Jesus said, nothing will overpower it. I gave my written revelation to the church. It will be preserved and continue on. The church will continue on. And that's why some false religions literally started with the theory that at some point in church history there was a great apostasy and the true church ceased to exist. That's actually the foundation of Mormonism. They're not shy about it. That's what they'll tell you. They'll say at some point, we don't know, between 300 and 400 A.D., the true church just died and ceased to exist. And it was an apostasy for a long time. And then God sent Joseph Smith to restart the true church. And every time a Mormon missionary tells me that, I say, well, what about the promise of Jesus in Matthew 16, 18? The gates of hell would not overpower it or overcome it. The church would always continue. And also it is is growing and maturing historically more and more all throughout church history. And we are a part of this amazing, wonderful promise that Jesus made. He's building his church. He continues to build his church. He will succeed. It's guaranteed success. He is the master. He is in charge. When you feel like a loser, it doesn't matter. Jesus is a winner. His goal will be realized. I want to close with this. Go to 1 Corinthians 15 so you can get a snapshot or a highlight of the victory, of the touchdown, of the slam dunk, of the spiking of the football, whatever you want to call it. The consummation of it all. Jesus is preparing His beautiful bride for that wonderful, eternal, heavenly, supernatural wedding day when the body of Christ, the bride, is married to Jesus Christ in all of its perfection as Jesus designed. And then after the wedding, there's going to be celebration. Starting at 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 20. Listen to this. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, that's when the church began, 2,000 years ago. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, who believe, all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, risen from the dead. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. At his coming. That's the end of the church age. So it, it goes from the beginning of the church age to the end. When all things are fulfilled. Verse 24. Then comes the end. 
This is the wedding day and after the wedding day and the celebration. What happens at that time? Then comes the end. When he, that's Jesus, delivers up the kingdom, that's his precious bride that he's been building, the church, all those years. He delivers the kingdom, which includes the bride, the church, to God the Father, the Father of the church. When Jesus has abolished all rule, all authority, all power, which includes Satan, our enemy. Verse 25. For Jesus must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Verse 26. The last enemy that Jesus will conquer or is abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected or he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And then it concludes with this in verse 28. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son, Jesus himself, also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. Who's that? God the Father. In order that God may be all in all. So that's the glorious day that we're headed for. Wedding day between Jesus, his precious bride, the church, And when it is fully mature and pristine, there will be a supernatural, heavenly, spiritual, eternal wedding where Jesus, the bridegroom, receives his precious bride, conquers all of his enemies, and then he he presents his precious bride and subjects all things in all of creation to God the Father for his glory forever and ever and ever. Now I think I have an appetite for lunch. How about you? Let's go ahead and thank God for his glorious church and his blessed, wonderful Savior, who makes it all possible. Father, we thank you for our time today. The opportunity to worship, to be with the saints, to sing to you, to be reminded of challenging truths from Scripture, but God, also very encouraging promises from your Word. Father, I thank you for every person that you saved through the Gospel and through regeneration and added them to the family of God. By your grace, apart from any of our doing, but by faith in you and your doing and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his powerful resurrection. Thank you so much for that wonderful truth. And God, if there's anybody among us who isn't born again yet and has not been truly adopted into the church, the body of Christ, we continue to pray for them that you'd work on their heart with your Holy Spirit, with prayer, with the truth of Scripture, with the positive witness of saints who are the light of the world that you might woo them to you, that they might be saved as well. And we just trust that you know what you're doing, so we commit that to you. And we thank you for this wonderful reminder that everything's happening according to your schedule. Nothing surprises you. Nothing derails you. Everything is as it should be on target. And we look forward to that glorious day, the culmination of the church and all of your work, all to be subjected to the Father for His glory forever. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.